Welcome to Journey to the Centre of Food, a voyage of discovery for curious foodies everywhere. My name's Jay Taylor, I'll be your pilot today, along with James Winter, our trusted foodie navigator. Hi. And on today's show, it's time to get your Michelin stars out again, as we are heading back to the peaks of culinary creation. Yes, we are honoured and delighted to be welcoming in the most amazing master of Chinese cooking, Andrew Wong, to explore his remarkable fusion of traditional past and cutting-edge future that has made his food some of the most exciting on the planet. So, for a trip deep inside the magic of dim sum, all aboard for a journey to the centre of Chinese food. Oh, I'm excited today, Jay, I tell you. You know, it's a good one, right? Well, I mean... I mean, I, I mean, I don't know if this sounds flippant or whatever, but you you spend enough time sort of floating around the, the food industry, and and you come across people in it who are marvellous and interesting, and obviously, hopefully, everybody that joins us on the show is, is is all of those things. But sometimes you come across someone who's at just a really interesting point in their journey. And when I first met Andrew, God, I mean, a long time ago. Um, now, firstly. The reason I was there is because I've been invited by one of the legends of the culinary world, you know, uh, Pierre Kaufman, to have some lunch because he thought Andrew was interesting. So when as soon as that happens, you think, okay, well, of course I'm coming, right? I'm paying attention. <laughs> one of the greatest yeah. chefs <laughs> on earth who supposedly was so talented he can make old shoe leather taste good. You know, that was the skill. Was you know says this guy's interesting. You you go along. But what you find is a guy that's just beginning on a journey. But what you you, you see is just raw talent but also you see someone that's got a real passion for what they're doing and and trying to take food beyond just being a series of disconnected experiences and you know and on wonderful plates and, and whatever and well cooked but he was trying to tell stories and the way he runs his restaurant which i, I haven't been obviously for a few years because of, of obviously the global pandemic um but um you know, he does a, a remarkable thing at lunchtime, which is his dim sum menu. He doesn't do it in the evening. So if you're listening to this thinking, I now afterwards thinking, I now must eat Andrew's food and I love dim sum, make sure you go for lunch. And it's about the journey of, of the sort of regions of, of China and the different influences of, of China and its different international borders and just so many layers of, of what he's trying to get across in, in essentially small mouthfuls of absolutely delicious well-executed dim sum but it was that ambition that you you see you see in someone and then when you hopefully when we talk to him you'll hear it from him you know it's very clear you know it's not odd and, and forced or anything it just comes out of him and it's it's in him to want to retell his cultural um, existence through his cooking through his personality through his curiosity and I think you know it, it was a remarkable lunch and obviously you know it was delicious, but what's what's happened to him since that point is that clearly he's just got stronger and more confident and better with it until the point where you say we're now talking about a chef with two Michelin stars, not one, but two, you know, and, and who knows what whatever, but I'm sure that wasn't his ambition. It's just you know, great things do rise to the top. They always say about that with cream and all that those silly metaphors. And when there's that passion as well, when you find I find the chefs that have a kind of narrative, a passion, a story to tell that is just woven into who they are. Suddenly, that seems to imbue the cooking with just a different, like, sort of supercharges it mm. and makes it feel like a very unique experience. Because, like you said, the idea to be able to capture those thousands of years is incredibly wonderful, mysterious, hugely diverse sort of continent of cooking. It, it, it's it's inspiring but weirdly it's sort of in britain is something that we it, don't really experience a huge amount like you said there's obviously been a lot of dim sum around and some incredible stuff but in terms of chinese cooking for lots of people it's still mired in the you know the old original takeaways and the sort of stuff you traditionally get when you go to chinatown and stuff so yeah it's mm -hmm. it's 
I'm fascinated with meeting Andrew. And it's another one of those interviews where he's turning up mid-service. So, or, you know, just pre-service. So he's going to be in his whites. He's going to be bashing and crashing as all the waiters are smashing around the background. Um, but I love those ones because it's always really exciting and they've always got the kind of... Uh, yeah. They're always in the zone, aren't they? Because they're about to start chopping onions. Well, absolutely. You know, he's fun. taken a moment to, to come away from the preparation of, of a lunch service to talk to us. So that's... I'm incredibly grateful. And it's... You know, we, we touched on this a bit with Vivek Singh the other... A few podcasts ago. I mean, you know, uh, uh, if you look, scroll back down the, the list, you'll see it. Yes, you know, do where, go back. Where um, he, it's a similar kind of journey where he knew that there was a, an expectation of, of Indian cuisine in Britain in the same way there is of Chinese food and restaurants in Britain, which Andrew, as you will hear, is, is a very, you know, he's a very modern, you know, you know man. He understands, you know, he, he worked at the restaurant, was a very traditional British Chinese restaurant before he, he took it on from his dad. So he knew what people were expecting and that didn't deter him. In fact, inspired him to dig deeper into his cultural history to, to, to show people that there was something else to, to explore and I think that's what's really admirable in that sense because it's very honest you know it's it's come out of him and you know he knows those stories and he wanted to tell them but he also knows that people like crispy duck and pancakes right you know and he knows there are certain <laughs> he knows people, what they like he knows what his customers are and he knows he can't just sort of you know, throw them something completely off piece to, to, to start with you have to take them on a journey that's I kind of feel what he's doing and it's lovely to see him grow confident and and stronger to be able to do it and to take people to some really interesting places and some of the dishes i'm hopefully you'll talk about but inspire him i'm you know, i'm sure are incredibly fascinating and new and unusual for us who literally don't you know our, our world of chinese restaurants is you know the takeaway or whatever and we, we've never been allowed to or been given the opportunity let's say to explore this side of Chinese food because it's such a long way away for us, you know, and it's oh, it's wonderful. So hopefully, it will have fun. It's an exciting time. guest. It won't just yes. be you and I talking about him he'll joining be, us. He'll, he'll be he'll, here. He'll join he'll us for five minutes. Moments. Yes, for our for our for our food. But before that, very interestingly, just briefly. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we were sent a very curious picture of something called umite from Australia, which we were trying to figure out, and we thought might be marmite butter. Luckily, we have fantastic listeners out there who always get back to us on this. And please do get in touch at Journey to the Centre of Food on Instagram and Journey to the Centre of Food at gmail.com. Holly, Holly W has got in touch. Hello, Holly. She says, hello, Jay and James. Um, loved hearing about the Umite butter. She hadn't heard of it yet. But she says, uh, Pepisea is a fancy butter and it's one of the most cultured butters in Australia. Uh, how do you to spell make it that? into everyday people's kitchen. You've heard about that. No, yeah? no. How do you spell it? Sorry. How do you? Pepe, Pepe as in P-E-P-E. Uh, Saya, S-A-Y-A. Uh, he, she says uh, she thinks MasterChef helped put it on the map. Oh, uh, okay. That and she says umite is a type of Vegemite, but made from ingredients such as miso, brewer's yeast, malt barley, um, and it's only available for chefs currently. So she thinks they mix together uh, the umite through the pepisea butter. Which sounds really interesting and really cool. But she said she can't send it because it would make it over from Oz. Because uh, that would be pretty unpleasant. After, yeah, it uh, says it's a butter made from creme fraiche. Oh, is it? That's what it says on their, uh, their Twitter page. <laughs> That's my first, oh gosh, yeah. Which is remarkable. And yeah. then Mark Meltonville, our wonderful wow. historian, did send us a picture of um, some Marmite toothpaste. Yes, he did. That's a, yeah. All manner of wrong. All manner of wrong. Is that real? Was that real, do you think? Well, we'll find out, won't we, if, uh, if we, uh, we order it and yeah. start using it and see how many uh, kisses under the brushes so we get this new, this new year. <laughs> Let's meet our guest host for today, Andrew Wong has a fascinating past. He grew up around his family's Cantonese restaurant. He studied chemistry at Oxford, then anthropology at the London School of Economics. 
Then he took over his family restaurant and went on a transformatory journey across China for many months where he met dozens of locals, apparently even bribing them to sometimes give them their tips, uh, and was so inspired he returned to Britain and set about reinventing how we think about Chinese cooking, mixing together traditional techniques with cutting-edge modern twists such as, you know, infused dry ice. Uh, his restaurant, A Wong, has now won two Michelin stars and he's opened up Kim's in Bloomsbury Arcade. And we're very lucky to be joined by him to dig into some Chinese cooking insights that many of us don't have by Andrew Wong. Andrew, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you. It's wonderful to have you here. James James has been talking off camera about the excitement we have to get you on the, on the show. Isn't that right, James? That's right. And and it's fun. Just before we, we hit record, then we were just chatting with Andrew about various things. And, and one of the points he made, it's it's his interest and is, is through... Whether you discover food through people or people through food was what we were talking about. And obviously, Andrew was saying that his interest is in the people instead of the food. And when you were mentioning how he you know, made notes and things and, and his travels and how actually perhaps it's for people he met were more inspiring than the recipes after a while that he was meeting. And that's what I mean, I'm hoping we can. I've got a question for you already, Andrew, which is, is inspired by that intro and, and what we were talking about is that when you're creating things now in the kitchen and if they're inspired by experiences you've had in China or wherever, do you do you see the person? You know, do you think of a person now rather than an ingredient? What, what what's the beginning for you for 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 creativity? You know, I, I think creativity comes in in loads of different forms, right? And I, I think only from a very personal perspective, when I when I say that, I'm far more interested in in finding about people through food as opposed to food through people. What I don't mean is kind of trivialize kind of cooking in any way what i'm trying to say is that food ultimately is cooked by people um and and these dishes they evolve over tens of thousands of years through the people it's not through some kind of science or something that's very laboratory based it's people who create these slight evolutions and the slight twists on dishes over tens of twenty thousand you know over years and years and years that, that make the dishes become what they are today and, and, you know, with regards to a very kind of flattering uh, intro, I think the one thing is that as I've got older and, and I've cooked more and I've become more mature, I've got to say that, well, slightly more mature, um, <laughs> I've got to say that what we don't do is we don't, I don't ever say that we're trying to reinvent or we don't, I don't say that we're trying to modernize or innovate um, Chinese cuisine because I think that in a way that's disrespectful to my own heritage in the sense that it implies that somehow it was um not as good beforehand um and actually i can tell you from my own personal experience cooking just under 20 years now um normally my journey of any any kind of dish development starts off with finding a recipe and then playing around with it with loads of different things in different ways and playing with the different textures and and seeing if there's anything that we can um modify slightly and normally what happens is over a 12-month period i end up back at the original recipe um, and I've, this has happened with soy chicken, it's happened with crispy pork belly, it's happened with Peking duck, it's happened with um, pulling noodles. I think when you have a cuisine that's as old as Chinese cuisine, so you're talking, you know, 3,000 years plus, um, with a, um, a subject matter such as cooking, which is ultimately trial and error. You know, I, I, you know, I know a lot of people make out that cooking is science. But you know what? Cooking, there are so many variables that you can't control that it's very difficult to look at in terms of being a pure science. Um, and you have to look at it more in terms of trial and error. 
uh, serendipity to, to, to some extent. Um, and I think that's how you get evolution of dishes and cuisine. And, and what we do in a restaurant is, I, I always refer to more as just celebrating um, the forefathers and, and, and the people who have come before me in a respectful way um, and in, in a way that is interested myself uh, in not only Chinese food, but Chinese culture, but also my navigation um, as a British-born Chinese um, within my own culture. And especially nowadays with the, you know, with the restaurant, what it is now, you'll get many opportunities to, to do events in, in Hong Kong, in China, in Singapore, in Malaysia, and, and seeing that dynamic of, of the fact that, um, you know, we are a, a Chinese restaurant, but we are a Chinese restaurant in an international city. Uh, and what does that mean? You know, it means that, you know, ultimately if we pick up our restaurant and drop it into Hong Kong. Some of it will be lost in translation ultimately, because I think that the, what we do, uh, which is, I think is, is unique in, 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 and is our USP is the fact that, um, I am British born Chinese. So I, I've navigated my own culture through the lens of growing up in the UK, which means I understand, for example, and this is the best example I can give you, the fact that I understand that within British culture, there is a very, very odd, inexplicable affinity to custard, right? But you drop that, <laughs> you drop, so right. yeah. I don't, and I, I grew up in the 80s, right? So I know why. Um, right? but, but, but you you take that into China, there is not that, that, kind of that mental nostalgic uh, affinity with custard. So one of our probably best-selling dim sums is a, a salted duck custard bun. And mm. okay, it, we, we've modified it slightly with its texture of, of how runny the custard is, because I understand um, that looking at through the lens of being born in Britain, I understand what people perceive custard to be. And if I was to cook it in a way that they took it in China and the literal translation is runny, yolk um runny sand bun that's the literal translation in chinese is because they they grate loads of um salted duck yolk through it so it gives that sandy texture but nothing in western cookery uh, aspires to be gritty like any sauce yeah. in western cookery it's like oh i want it to be super smooth i want it to be super silky but in china it's not like that there's certain textures that we aspire to that are meant to be slimy that are meant to be gritty sandy um and so again you have to you have to recomprehend your entire kind of cooking vocabulary sometimes um when you're when you're basically you're you're tra transcending through these 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 cultural mm. barriers and cultural so, cultural lines which side of the of the seesaw let's call it do you find more 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 challenging do you find it harder to get british people if you try to 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 accept gritty or slimy or the Chinese, Hong Kong, Malaysia, and East Asia audience to accept custard. I mean, what is where? Where's the cultural kind of openness? Do people are are we equally stuck in their own? Uh, I think it's probably view? it's probably equal for different reasons. I think um, the thing about uh, the, the the dynamic of trying to re-educate the British uh, guests who come to our restaurant, it, they see it as education. Whereas in, you do it the other way, going back into China, it's not really education. It's just like either giving them something new or basically you're messing around with what they would perceive to be something they own. 
So it's a slightly, it's slightly different yeah, it's dynamic. It's tricky that. Um, That's tricky. It is. It? And, and I, I tell you, I love dim sum. Right? Dim sum is probably my favorite part of the Chinese kitchen. I think that it's been one of the biggest miscommunications and misunderstandings in, in gastronomy, in thinking that um, if you compare dim sum to kind of French patisserie, for some reason, there's been this kind of psychological discrepancy that when you when you try to perceive uh, West, Western French patisserie, you imagine it to be something very, very highbrow. But when you perceive yeah. dim sum, you perceive it to be quite kind of canteen-like. Um, and actually, yeah, I've, simple. I've, yeah, but I've, I've devoted, I mean, nearly 20 years of my life to, to dim sum. And actually, the craft is near enough identical. Um, yet, you know, when you take that argument back into China, you would think that, the the dynamic would be different you would think that it would be kind of like oh you know we're so proud of what dim sum is for our culture it's carried cantonese culture into the international uh, stage globally um over the past hundred years but actually when you go into hong kong you go into Singapore, china the dynamic is very odd it's very difficult for locals to think of dim sum as anything more than that pastime that you have with aunties and uncles um between breakfast and lunch um so yes. it's a very odd and i look at dim sum i look mm. at it in terms of um being a very very pinnacle of gastronomy i truly believe that um that the skill set the artisanal um know-how that is required in order to create it to the right level i think it really is you know at the very height of gastronomy yet yet somehow the the, the messaging is, has been lost um through kind of the way that the Chinese cuisine has, has kind of um, dispersed through through international cities. Don't you feel we have a blind spot? I feel like we have a big blind spot in Britain in general for Chinese cooking. It feels like it, uh, of all the different cuisines out there, that one still feels um, something that we don't have the same respect for as, as we do now for, for Indian food, for example, and, the, and, the, and the, the, the fact that boundaries are being pushed in that and but completely accepted. It feels like, yes, dim sum is out there and there's there's some fantastic stuff I've had in dim sum and that feels... But in, in general, Chinese feels like that there is a renaissance coming because people are suddenly going to realise what is out there. It's still quite a simplistic view we have of it over here. Have you encountered that? You know, you know we've... Well, I've, I've kind of... Um thought about this and we, we have discussed this a lot when, when, when I talk with um, the anthropology department at, at SOAS and you know I tell you one thing the best thing about working with academics is that academics always make out that they know very little but they actually know a lot chefs <laughs> always make out they know a lot when they actually know very little finally we're going to put that on a t-shirt yeah, that, is, I mean, that <laughs> is the defining difference between an academic and a I'll chef I'll get Heston on the phone Heston, <laughs> I just want to point out you know, we, we talk the talk but actually when it, all you need to do is prod us like a little bit deeper and you'll realise the, 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 the magnitude of our ignorance um, but I remember like Mukta she, she, um, she basically took my question or, or what you just asked me and she, she basically correlated the way Japanese food has become this extremely uh, revered cuisine now. And it's the same as what's happened with Nordic cuisine and it's the same as what has happened with um, uh, kind of Spanish cuisine over the past 20 years. And yeah. actually, you've got to look at it not in terms of gastronomy. You've got to look at it in terms of kind of political setting. You've got to turn it in terms of um, it's more of a renaissance of culture 
but it's it's a very very kind of pragmatic thought out um reinvigoration of culture through food so in japan for example post second world war it was like japan made a very conscious effort to go we are gonna set out japanese culture on the international platform as this kind of um as as this celebration of our past um and gastronomy was a part of that and if you look at uh, chinese cuisine actually if you look at kind of like the history over the past 40 or 50 years in all honesty if you look at the, the the trends and peaks and troughs of what happened with japan actually it's very similar to to what we're describing now with with chinese cuisine um and and as a chef who you know who who has mates in 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 other countries cooking other cuisines the curiosity for the chinese kitchen i think has never been stronger you know the number of people chefs who, who text me or email me and go oh can i have a recipe for a chasil bun you know how can you get this split open uh, can you tell me about how you use wheat starch tapioca starch sweet potato starch um you know 15 years ago when i first started cooking nobody cared it was just like oh dim sum we just go to chinatown on the sunday and we'll eat it but now it's like well how do you do that why do you use a, a knife instead of a rolling pin to open out the pastry? Why do you have to use boiling water at a certain temperature in order to get the right elasticity or, or um, kind of opaqueness to the, to, the, to the pastry? And, you know, in all honesty, in 2021, there are very few kind of avant-garde techniques left. I think Ferran and, and, and Albert and Heston, they've, they've kind of exhausted when it comes to finding new techniques. I think it's about... Um, looking into techniques of the past which haven't been looked at yet and i think the chinese kitchen is full of them mm. can i ask a, a, an ignorant question which i'm never ashamed to do in terms of dim sum what is the uh essence of dim sum when it comes to the cooking of it what is the what are you aiming for with dim sum what should it be in terms of a uh a food experience when you when you say okay this is the pinnacle of sort of what dim sum is does that make sense in terms of what, it, what 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 is it you're what's the thing you're you're striving to get from it? yeah again and then this this is it's a difficult question to answer because obviously we're coming from the rest from the standpoint of a restaurant a two mission style restaurant which wants to celebrate this right but i mean culturally if you're talking about for fact what are you talking you're talking about a, a pastime which traditionally was in guangdong tea houses in the 1800s and the dim sum as in the eating part was a was was free like you go there to drink tea and the food would come as a complimentary gift uh to accompany really? the tea because obviously tea is actually like tapas or yeah yeah exactly exactly so you know and then you you kind of you move it slightly forward to kind of the 1850s and then you're talking about in guangdong became this international hub for for trade with the british with india with the middle east and then there became there there were i always i always tried to make this story a little bit more sexy but um <laughs> so i always trying to put me down and put a dampener on my stories right uh, i always <laughs> i always use the analogy of kind of like the wolf of wall street so like in in guangdong there are these these uh, merchants who are basically linking the the produce in china to these international traders and the hub really was in guangdong and so what these basically these merchants were doing they basically invited all the chefs from around china the very best ones to come to this hub in guangdong to cater for these billionaires who were trading from all over the world uh to basically tell them look these guys have the cash they want to spend it and we need to give them something super luxury 
So all these chefs from all over China came to Guangdong and started to make these, what we perceive now to be dim sum. So for something that was previously quite um, just flour, water-based, or just a, a, maybe a relatively simplistic filling, all became this more and more refined art form, which now has, you know, is, is dim sum. Um, but, but, you know, the history of it really was, you know, it, it's related to international trade. It's related to colonialism in a way that we see it today. Yet the real kind of history behind it is a complimentary snack to a company tea. Mm. So <laughs> how, do you, how do you navigate that into, well, you know, this is how I'd like to perceive it in 2021. I think that it, it's a very difficult question to answer. And all I know is, is that from a skill set as a chef, um, I love making it. I think that it's one of the hardest things to do. I make the same dumpling every single day, every service, every single day. Uh, I make 150 of the dumplings, my first job of the day. Yet there hasn't been a single day where I've looked at the whole set of 150 and gone, you know what, they're perfect. Every day I look at them, I can make them better. I can make them better. I can make them better. Mm. that's cool does that drive you mad yeah absolutely that- it's one of those things as well it's, it's like because especially the ones that i make they're hag out so they, i've got it into my head that it, it needs to be 13 pleats and just sometimes just the slip of the finger when you're pleating across you get one that has like a slight bend in the in in the in the crease and then that's my whole set done for the day the whole day there's some flying around yeah, the kitchen again. Yeah. It's not going well. Wow, that's remarkable. And it's just that the artistry you talk about with it is it just in the scale of them as well. There's something that there's no there's no place to hide really with dim sum either. They're very exposed on the plate. They're very obvious. They're, the artistry is there to, there to see. But I've never really thought about the the delicacy involved in making that and the the the, the, the hand the necessity for the things to be as trans you know transparent as they are in places and. The, the consideration that's gone into that it's remarkable. yeah absolutely and i think that the one thing that pains me more than anything is when i go to eat dim sum and i see people put two different dumplings in their mouth at the same time and i'm just like <laughs> do you realize that that is like literally like dim sum chefs normally would have worked purely on dim sum so if in a chinese kitchen if you do dim sum you only make dim sum right so uh you know a western kitchen might be d- d- uh, split up into you know your main kitchen your larder and your pastry kitchen in a in a Chinese kitchen, you have the the wok kitchen, a roasting kitchen, uh, a dim sum kitchen, a soup kitchen, um, and then sometimes you might have a pastry kitchen in a modern day world. Now, dim sum that means that each of those kitchens has a head chef in them, um, and a pastry and a dim sum chef would never do any of the other stuff. If you if you go into a big restaurant now, you ask the dim sum chef to go on a wok, he will literally give you a thousand different Cantonese profanities of what your mother is. Like, it, just, it would not happen. Um, it's like, I do this and this is all mm. I do. I have my own working hours, which are different to everyone else's in the kitchen because I got to work. I just have to come in earlier than everyone else. Mm. Um, and they, this is the, the art form. This is the art form and this is what they've trained for 20, 30, 40 years for. So do not even attempt to ask me <laughs> to move into a different part of the kitchen to learn another part of the kitchen i have no interest is what he'll tell you <laughs> so just firstly i want to know where you go to eat dim sum first of all that would be you know if, if you're not eating if you're, i mean because I, I, I guess what i'm really reaching to out towards it have you found anyone that felt the same way about this as you have you found a partner in crime someone to join this this journey with you because often that's the way it happens certainly with french 
pastry making and stuff. They have unions and armies and, and things to, to, yeah. to shout their voice. And have you found any other people that are, are on this journey with you? No, you see, there's a slight there's a slight difficulty in this whole equation, and a lot of that is um, economics. So actually, the biggest problem with dim sum is that um, in a business in a restaurant format, it's very difficult to make it work financially as a restaurant. Um, and you know, we're, why is that? Well, because I think, especially in London and even in the international scene, even in Hong Kong, actually, people have this perception of how much you can pay for um, a dumpling. Um, you know, you can go to a three-star restaurant in Italy and spend 40 euros on a ravioli, but you can't go to a Chinese restaurant and spend 40 euros on a dumpling because... Um, such a good point. People yeah. just... I mean, it's a cultural thing. And it will change. It will change. It will change. But it will take time. Um, and so with this um slight technicality um what you find is a lot of dim sum restaurants absolutely they have the skill and they have the facilities to offer something even more um intricate and even more technical and even more kind of bespoke but the problem is a lot of dim sum restaurants in order to make them work you have to do hundreds of people a day um and and ultimately if you mm. want to cater for hundreds of people unless you've got hundreds of chefs it doesn't work um so what often happens is that there's a decision somewhere along the line where it's just like you know what if we need to serve 400 guests that means we need to probably need to make about ten thousand dumplings um you know what let's just um let's just keep the status quo um give people what they want um and 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 keep 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 the ball moving and obviously it's, it's a very very high standard but i think what we mm. do is is you know we have three people plating um at the end of the cooking process of dim sum in order to add last minute textures and last minute kind of uh, flavor profiles you know and actually it's not a great financial model um and if you talk about partners in crime we were due to do this incredible event with uh albert adria in in barcelona last year because actually he's the closest I've come to meeting someone who, who has, um, who, who looks at these small bites in a similar kind of way. Now him from a kind of a tapas perspective, but even his tapas yeah. is very different as well, right? It is that idea of a single mouthful explosion. That, that's, and you know, sometimes dim sum chefs look at their dim sum in a slightly different way, but I'm a big, big advocate in, in the one thing that dim sum needs to be is that you have one mouthful to basically tell people what you want that thing to be. Um, and, and, you know, I think with Albert and his interpretation of, um, of tapas, I was really looking forward to that, to kind of like take little bits of what he was doing, um, mm. steal loads of his recipes, of course, um, <laughs> and, 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 you know, really kind of understand the way that he navigates this idea of single mouthful um, food, mm. which is a very different type of cooking. It's a completely different type of cooking to this Western format of a, you get a whole plate and it has several Meat components on it. It, it you, The way that you eat it and the way that you cook it and the way that it's thought out and conceptualized is completely mm. different. Yeah, it's a big thing, isn't it? It's like the old days of steaming hot. That used to be a selling point, a food steaming hot. And it feels like the same thing, a full plate versus minimalist things. And it's funny because that's, like you said, completely accepted in certain cuisines now. We don't, don't blink at it. We're not expecting piled high plates but in certain areas there is that inbuilt economics which is always a battle because of that then i'm guessing you're constantly having to push against those 
the financial sanity versus the creative desire to push on things? Is that a battle you have to face? You know what? It's only a battle if you don't accept it. I think I just accept it, and I've accepted it for the past five years. So you know what? It, it's okay. Um, yeah, yeah, I think I think there are restaurants where there, you know, there's certain restaurants out there which are designed to make money, and there's other restaurants which are I wouldn't call them passion projects, but they're kind of like their their restaurants are open because we just want to cook what we want to cook out of just either interest or um, the desire to create something um either desirable or just something different or or or, or want to just basically have a go at basically getting people to reconfigure their preconceptions uh, and i don't necessarily think that is strictly just passion it's 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 a lot of things incorporated mm. into um a mindset when you go into um creating a restaurant does it create some kind of barriers, though, to what you can create, you know, in terms of ingredients you'd like to use or things you'd like to put in that dim sum to create that mouthful explosion, you know, that, that, that thing when, you've, when you know there's a certain price that at the end you can ultimately only charge because that's what maximum most people will pay. I mean, does it, does it hinder you in that way? You know what, it doesn't, it doesn't hinder me. It doesn't hinder me so much. I think we're very, very lucky. And I think... Um, the day that I don't appreciate how lucky we are as a restaurant is a day that probably I should shut the restaurant, you know, because I can sit here, you know, as a two mission star Chinese restaurant and we can serve dim sum in individual pieces um, and we can have the luxury of having three people plating up individual dim sums. But this is a luxury. It's something which 15 years ago you could not have done. Um, people wouldn't, you, you know, London wouldn't have been ready for it people would just not have walked through the door. Um, and, and the position that we're in is all thanks to, um, you know, I mean, the first Chinese restaurant in the UK was probably what, 1895. So you're talking about over a hundred years worth of our forefathers' work in creating this situation where we can have this restaurant now where I don't have to worry about um, too much about um, can we use this, can we use that um, compared to other restaurants. Um, do we... Do we still take those considerations into account? Yes, of course. You know, uh, as much as I'd love to, you know, maybe stick, you know, truffles and caviar over something just to be like super luxurious or, or great dried abalone over stuff and put a bird's nest over stuff, you know, okay, probably it's not going to happen. Um, but I don't think that's necessarily because of, um, just because of the, 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 understanding of chinese food i think it also as a chef in, in general you know there comes a limit um of of what you can do you know and when when dried abalones can cost four or five thousand pound a kilo you know if you're going to grate that all over something sure. yeah you know That's yeah crazy. people people think people think truffles are expensive no chinese dried seafood it takes it to a whole new level i'm, I'm interested actually what in, what what what's caught your fascination right now in your development areas and meeting what ingredient or technique is the thing that you're really kind of just spinning around in your mind at the moment you know the big thing i'm, I'm looking at now is is i'm different ways of using dried seafood uh, as a big thing so dried abalone fish more fish more is basically the dried bladder of a fish um and it looks pretty gory but actually why why is that a good thing why is that it's thing? meant to be super healthy super high in collagen um very revered as a as culturally as a chinese ingredient um so when you rehydrate a fish more um 
it almost gets like a squiddy texture to it, um, which is very unique. Um, and then there were, with a lot of Chinese ingredients, you know, you, a lot of people argue, oh, you know, shark's fin is tasteless or this is tasteless or that is tasteless. But yeah, but, you know, it still has value because as a culture, it has gastronomical value. Um, you know, as I said, if, if abalone's and abalone's are several thousand pound a kilo, last time we bought bird's nests, I think um, we got a really good price, but it was still $3,000 a kilo. Um, you know, is this all down to the because this is a drying process which you're not having any part of? This is being done away from you, so yeah, yeah, absolutely. It is very much how do they do that? How what's that? What goes into what go, it? a lot of work? Um, I mean, yeah. bird's nest, for example, you know, the, these, these bird's nests are collected, you have to basically abseil up these caves to get these bird's nests, which is basically swallow saliva, and then you bring them down, um, and you have a team of people to meticulously tweeze about every single feather that is intertwined inside that nest only then can you wash it and dry it and then it gets packed and then it gets sent to us and then we rehydrate it then we double boil it and then we use it um what does it taste like andrew what's it you want my honest answer very little um very little um it's does it have texture yes could i find ingredients um that didn't cost that much with a very similar texture also yes but i think with with food i think sometimes food is more than just ingredients it's more than a perfunctory thing sometimes it is about as i said seeing people through food so it's about exploring the reason why this is such a revered ingredient um and a lot of time what is the traditional way of cooking bird's nest a lot of time you bubble, double boil it so basically you put it in uh, a clay pot with normally some pumpkin and a little bit of rock sugar and then you steam it um so that it basically ticks over at a kind of lower temperature to maintain all the nutrients you know and and what do you end up with you end up with kind of like a sweet consomme with kind of um the texture of kind of wood ear fungus um which is what rehydrated birds kind of tastes like um but it, it's more than that it, it, it's the fact that you know several thousand years ago someone looked at a swallow's nest I swallowed saliva and said, oh, you know what? <laughs> yeah. That's it. I mean, that's the question, isn't it? I mean, Mark who Twain, that dude? Well, Mark that Twain famously wrote that brave was he who first ate the oyster, right? There's got to be somebody yeah. somewhere that first did this. And that's, I suppose, for me, I find, I always love that question. It's like you try and put yourself in the mindset of the very first person that yeah. made that decision, as you say, to climb into a cave and then climb to the very top of the cave and go through that process you've just described. You know, I, and the second person who tried it went, it's all right. Well, this, this is kind of it. And actually, you know, what people also forget is when, when you talk about these ingredients costing X, Y, Z, the economics of it has got nothing to do with any type of barometer of, of how much it, how much it's worth or, or, or how tasty it is. It's completely arbitrary. It's like Bitcoin. It's, it's literally just like, if tomorrow everyone decided we're not going to use truffles, every single chef in the world decided to say we're not going to use truffles anymore, I guarantee you they would not cost two and a half thousand pounds a kilo. You know? No. It's amazing. I was having this conversation about lab-grown diamonds with my kid the other day, and they are the exact chemical cool. equivalent. You can't tell the difference between them and a non-lab-grown diamond, yet they're not as worth as much because they're a lab grower. And I was thinking, okay, so spin forward 30 years and they're on two different rings. Would you even know? Because there's probably no way of testing. And it's just a percep the perception thing is so powerful though because as you've said, knowing what you're eating though enhances the experience 
exponentially because suddenly you realize you're eating something of extra value and it's not it's the real thing and not a fake of it it's incredible when those two things become entwined and it's the mind is so powerful in the experience absolutely and i think the, the big thing that we we really focus on at the restaurant is this idea of of giving a narrative and when i started worth working with with Soaz, the one thing we consciously said is that we never wanted to recreate old recipes because i just don't think that way and i'm not um I'm not good enough at following rules to do make that happen. I'm I'm quite subversive as by nature. And we always said that I'm more interested in in kind of working with with Mukta in painting pictures of moments in time. And do they have to make do they have to be historically um factually 100% true? No, absolutely not. But, you know, when you eat it and when you look at it, if that paints a picture of a postcard or that moment in time that I've been researching with Soaz, then I think that we've achieved what we want to do. And then when we tell the guests about it, whether it be a dish that explains mealtime in a forbidden city or it explains, you know, the the cultural um, significance of birdsness or dried abalone, um, then I think that that we've achieved what we want to do in a restaurant. And hopefully, I always say as well, that if a guest leaves a restaurant and they Google one thing about China, then I think that we've achieved ultimately our our primary goal that's incredible mm-hmm. um andrew i i'm i've got an iron clock and you're in your white and i know that you do have to go and God, try and yes. make 150 150 perfectly today today's the day today's the <laughs> and Ella. just before you go no, I already James, uh, just but just before you go james is there any last question we have for andrew in the remaining oh, couple of minutes gosh, we've got? i mean, I've only, got so I mean many, i've got but... so many i mean you know i'm just fascinated now by what you've got a bit longer don't worry I, I can be a bit late okay don't worry. well no, all i'm in the process of storytelling you know i mean how do you find it i mean because it's something you know i work with heston in the fat duck and the team there we try this is a question we always we always confront ourselves with which is how we tell stories in the dining room and what we use to engage the diners i mean what do you do i mean do you just literally uh, do your your front of house team just tell the stories verbally is there something you do to put them towards the stories you're trying to tell how do you how do you find it i mean do you find people receptive and what, and what do you do yeah, so, so you know we have the advantage. I think um, because of the cuisine that we cook, there is a lot. There are a lot of ingredients where a bit like, what's that? Like, that's the kind of gut reaction. I think we're, Heston probably may not be able to do this because he's, he's working with with ingredients that are probably a little bit more familiar, just cooked at a, a super super high level, right? But if I was to ask our guests, do you know what a burst looks like? Do you know what an, a dried abalone looks like, or do you even know what an abalone looks like? Uh, do you know yeah. do you know why we revere abalone because it looks like a a gold ingot. Yeah. You know, the other question is, do people even know what a gold ingot looks like? So then we have like we have these kind of these visuals um, of, of what these things are and, and culturally where they sit within Chinese history. You know, we we have a course where it's um, we're trying to introduce people to the art of noodle making, um, and so we have you know we have a, an iPad with with myself making noodles, um, and then the, the rest of it the rest of it is more. Um, about a journey. So our, our tasting menu, what, I, what it's always been is basically, it's, it's like a journey through different provinces of China. And as well as just um, giving people dishes which are an homage to a particular area, the really big thing is by the end of the meal, to really kind of ask the guests, most importantly, did you really feel um, 
a difference between each of those places? And if the question is yes, then, you know, then we've kind of achieved what we wanted to achieve. You know, we want people to know that, you know, dumplings are not eaten all over China. Noodles are not eaten all over China. I've been to restaurants in China where they don't serve rice um, and people still don't believe me to this day. But as again, that's crazy. I would never yeah, imagine. But it's incredible, isn't it? Like you said, uh, one of your things you said, like, like seventeen borders or something. China has fourteen, something, uh, fourteen yeah. borders. But we think of it as just this one thing. Sure, China. You know, and it's you know as I said, if you right? go into, if you go to Qingdao, you kind of go to Shandong, you go to the coastal areas. You know, historically speaking, when people were going onto the ships to go and work for months and months and months, it's completely not practical to be boiling rice on board. So the cuisine has evolved to all be using kind of buns. Like everything is buns based. Um, so I've been, as I've been to restaurants, I asked for rice. He said, oh, we don't serve rice. And I was just as ignorant as, as the next person. I was like, really? Are you joking? <laughs> <laughs> what kind of Chinese restaurant is this? Um, and then, and then you, you, you do a bit of research and you slap yourself and you just go, oh, I, I, sh- I, should, I should have thought about it a bit more. Um, but yeah, I think with, with, with our guests, it really is about trying, just trying to get them to um, go, oh, I never knew that. Um, and, and and it works on multiple fronts. You know, I, I I never wanted to be that chef where you go in and people you feel like you're getting preached at. Um, it's very much about here it is. Um, try it. We'll give you a little bit of background behind it, and then you make your own decision. Um, and that that's that's a big thing in a restaurant. Um, and I think even even now as we move, we push forward with kind of like. Uh, drinks, not only just wine and tea and stuff. Um, the big thing I always tell our, our our SOM team is that we don't we don't preach. It's you know, wine is the perfect one, right? It's like you, you go to a lot of restaurants, you, you're slightly intimidated because a Bible arrives um, yeah. and they slap it down yeah. on the table. You don't know where to start, um, and then you just end up regurgitating things that you've heard other people say. You know, all all, all the the little bits that you've you've seen on television where people go oh chinese food you must drink riesling and pinot noir so every time you go to a chinese restaurant that's all you say right you know, yes i really love pinot noir and riesling it, it goes it goes perfectly and dim sum it must be champagne it must be nothing else um, well that's not bad for you guys though right <laughs> no, no, but, but actually what i will what i will always tell the team now is that we don't do that so the way that we mm. we get to interact with the drink side of stuff in the restaurant is about kind of bringing people a lot of stuff um, and letting them make their own decision. You know, we'll bring them three or four glasses for them to try. Uh, we'll bring them three or four different teas for them to try. And then the rest is for them to make their own decision. You know, you maybe, you, maybe cool. you really do like Bordeaux with, with dim sum. I mean, I don't, I wouldn't recommend it tomorrow, but, but you know, if that is your thing, then absolutely, why not? Um, and we're not here to tell you what to like. We're just here to kind of give you the opportunity to, to try lots of different things that you may not, be able to try at home and then the rest is for you to basically have fun with oh andrew this has been uh, genuinely inspiring i mean this is the joy of getting to meet people like yourself um, who just open our eyes and, and, and to think in different directions but this has been really wonderful i thoroughly enjoyed this um where can are you all over social media or anything like that where can our listeners find you if they wanted to or are you just literally in the kitchen 24 7 and that you don't have time for any of that oh so uh, so we, we we have a podcast now so we have a podcast that we do with soas it's called exo south um, and a lot of that is a celebration of what we've been describing. Uh, a lot of it is kind of each week we describe a, um, a dish and then I just talk random streams of thought. 
And then Mukta Gami puts facts into the discussion and says, Andrew, you are wrong. Um, you're, you, you are about 2,000 years out of sync of what I'm describing. But hey-ho, um, she's kind of, she's learned to work with my ignorance. Um, but it, it really is. And I think when people, sometimes they get, they get a misconception sometimes of what it is for a chef to work with um, academics. And I think they think that it's very kind of uh, contrived and it's very kind of um, exact. And maybe it is with Heston, yeah. but actually with me, we always describe it, Mutuna. We describe it as like having cappuccino, like in The Sopranos, where you, you kind of sit outside and you have your two seats and then you just basically chat. You chat mm. and naturally you just let your own passion, um, hopefully, and curiosity, and curiosity, and curiosity. yeah, your, your own passion and your own curiosity excite the other person. And then you just wait to see what bounces back. And obviously her kind of um, speciality is slightly different to mine. And you just watch it. You just see what happens. And sometimes, you know, we start off talking about, you know, Ming Dynasty banqueting. And then by the end of it, we're talking about chicken feet with fermented tofu. We don't know how we got there. But somewhere <laughs> in that conversation, later on, when I'm thinking about dishes and stuff, it'll be like, you know what? I remember that part of the conversation. And that's the reason why I'm going to use this ingredient as opposed to this ingredient. So if you like what you've heard from Andrew on this and you want a really deep dive, what's the podcast called again? XO Soused. S-O-U-S-E-D. So X-O and S-O-S-E-D. S-O-U-S-E-D. Go seek it out. And also, obviously, A. Wong is the restaurant, uh, which is sounds like an incredible voyage uh, for the senses and into, like you said, 2,000, many more thousand years of of history but done in your unique way uh, but Andrew thank you ever so much we hugely appreciate you coming on that was the most fascinating of chats uh, and very best of luck with everything that's coming up Absolutely. and especially with the 150 dumplings tomorrow thank you so much <laughs> this week that's all we got time for James thank you I'll speak to you again soon marvellous see you soon <laughs>